it was very clear, very quickly, we were onto something really, really big, um, very quickly. And I think it was TMZ ran something in the middle of the day. Um, we got word Jimmy Kimmel was going to be doing something. And I think those kind of mass hits, USA Today put it on it on the cover of its of its health section of all things. Um, it was pretty quick that we realized we are we're onto something even bigger than we when we than we thought we would. And I told Trailblaze, like my North Star for this type of effort is a late night show. Get me a late night show, and you know you've hit the zeitgeist. We hit three plus Saturday Night Live. Um, the, the, the results were the results were just beyond what any of us could imagine. This is the dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is my right hand, Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Howard Schachter, Chief Communications Officer of Merriment. Howard, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Doing great, and thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's a privilege. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well out here in Colorado. Excited to talk to two more East Coasters again, you know? There it is. That's Put another one up. East, yes, Coast, East Coast is here. All right, Howard. So before we kind of dive in and discuss a lot of different concepts, I'd love for our listeners to get a little background about you and how you got into this space. Uh, sure. And thanks again for having me. I'm a little jealous of... Uh, the skiing that Kellen probably has had. We don't, we don't have much of that. We've got some great herb on our, on our coast coming, but uh, not such great ski weather. At any rate, me. Um, so I've got about 30 years in, uh, in and around communications and marketing. Uh, the vast majority of that before I got into cannabis, I would say is a classically trained communications guy, um, both in agencies and in-house in, in, in senior positions, representing and, and, and working with and for uh, some of the more you know, widely respected brands out there, Coca-Cola, Spotify, Microsoft, Live Nation, Facebook, and others. Um, I really got my start, though, cutting my teeth, um, working on McDonald's business for a national PR firm, uh, Golan, where, you know, I always say it was sort of like going to the Harvard of PR uh, in and out of what does it mean to use communications effectively to uh, persuade um, and, and amplify message. So in and around agencies and, uh, and in-house jobs for most of my career. And then about um, five years ago, uh, while running a PR agency in New York City, um, that had nothing to do with the cannabis space, a cannabis project opportunity came to help launch um, a trade group that exists today, the National Association of Cannabis Businesses. It was really a departure from what our agency was about, but a real exciting opportunity that we took on and I helped um, lead on a project basis. And boy, you know, all, all the elements of, of what I love about this industry and always will love certainly the commerce opportunity, the social justice component of it, and the health and wellness benefits of the plant all spoke to me immediately. And six months later, I found myself resigning my, the presidency of the firm, hanging out a shingle, and, uh, and I was off to the races. Was there any hesitancy to kind of dive into cannabis? Obviously, with a lot of your accomplishments with really, really big companies, cannabis kind of comes with a stigma. So was there any hesitancies to kind of go from, let's say, 
big outside industry into the cannabis space? Uh, great question. For me, not at all. For my partner at the agency, very much so. Both, frankly, you know, just at that time, um, not particularly educated on, on everything that we're talking about that we know so well. Um, but, but more importantly, and I don't, I don't, will never blame her for this. You know, she was the kind of a, a leader who felt like we know what we're good at. We have a thriving agency there. And as long as the pot is big enough to grow from, let's not depart, right? Like go with what you know well. And I think that's a really smart marketing tenant. So I can't blame her for that, but she was not against, she was not for us doing it, but I believe that it, it was a real opportunity. And so that, that was a very interesting, interesting dynamic. And what we agreed to was I would just sort of do it off the side of my plate with some of the younger folks in the firm. And, uh, and, and like I said, it was hook, line and sinker. So when we got through that and had an opportunity to do more in this space, as opportunities came to us, it became very clear that if I wanted to continue in it, it, it needed to be a different path. Awesome. And I'm glad you shared those examples. So then let's let's kind of move into MaryMed. Can you share for our listeners who aren't familiar, you know, who MaryMed is and the value they bring to the space? Sure. Thanks for that. Um, so so let's go back to 2017. I leave uh, the firm. I worked as a full-time consultant for the NACB. Um, I then joined as the first head of communications for Acreage Holdings, another MSO. Um, and you could have a whole podcast there on the cautionary, on some of the things we did great and some of the cautionary tales of that, of that firm. So I rode the elevator up and a little bit down and found myself last spring thinking, you know what? It's time to find another opportunity and spoke to a good number of ancillaries and MSOs and a lot of folks in the industry that I have the utmost respect for in terms of where do we think we're going, how, why, um, uh, horses to ride, et cetera, um, and was introduced to, to an opportunity at Merrimed. And all my due diligence on the company, um, I, I, I fortunately will say, have come to fruition. Um, we are a, a smaller MSO, um, I guess, when you think in terms of the tiers by revenue anyway, that a lot of uh, a lot of uh, prognosticators do in, in the world of in cannabis investing. I guess we're a tier three. Um, we have uh, seven dispensaries in Massachusetts, Illinois, Delaware, three more in development in Massachusetts and Maryland, um, four large cultivation processing facilities in Maryland, Massachusetts, Delaware, and Nevada. Um, we recently announced an acquisition that allow us to go Fully vertical in Illinois, so we're a we're a we're a tight focused MSO um, with a couple of things that I I think really stand us out from the pack of of MSOs out there, large and small. Um, we have a tenured and validated management team that's been together for over ten years, working together in every nook and cranny of this industry. Um, uh, and that's so important. We're not talking about just you know, smart financiers, which are not people that really understand what it means to build and develop facilities, train staff, um, uh, build out SOPs, acquire licenses, et cetera, and put all of that knowledge to work for us every day. Um, we're organically grown. Uh, we are not the result of going out on an acquisition spree and hoping to cobble together like cultures, processes, et cetera, 
we the, the company began as advisors to license holders or those that wanted them and the consolidation strategy uh, that that have been part of our core strategic growth plan has been about acquiring those businesses that were clients so we again built them help win their licenses build their facilities train their staff so the integration has been much more seamless um, much less risky much less expensive and I thought that was and is an important part of the foundation of, of growth from there. Um, three, and, and I suppose most importantly, financial discipline. Um, this is a company very disciplined about every single dollar that we spend, operating budgets, SG&A, how we approach M&A and all other expenditures um, translates to a company that's highly profitable, clean balance sheet, great operating margins, significant cash on hand, and poised for tremendous growth. All of that spoke to me, doubling revenues the last couple of years. Um, so, uh, and then finally, at the end of the day, and as a marketer, what really speaks to me, um, a real focus on quality when it comes to R&D, innovation, and ultimately growing great flour and having great product. Our brands, Betty Zetties, um, fruit shoes, Nature's Heritage Flower, and others, award winners and top sellers in every market we're in. Um, and all of this, all of this was, was a great story that I felt like needed to be told. And that's why I joined uh, last spring and have moved up to Massachusetts subsequently from, uh, from New York to be part of the home team. Appreciate you sharing that story. And from our experience, obviously on social media, there's a lot of fans of brands out there and, and big MSOs. And Mary Beth is one that continually comes up. And I, I think there's a difference because there's ones that are fans and then there's loyalists. And the the, out, the outcrying support that we found on Twitter for, for your company is really hard to rival. And it challenges some of the bigger MSOs out there. So I give you, know, you and your company and your leadership team a ton of respect for that because you've been able to cultivate that. Plus the East Coast markets, right? They haven't even gotten started. And it's exciting to think about the prospects of the future, especially with certain states that you named and how they haven't really gotten started yet in the process. So before we dive into some of those specifics, for our listeners, what does MeriMed do differently or better than everyone else in this space? Well, first off, thanks for for cluing into our investor base. You know, it's 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 a very interesting insight that you raise, and something that I paid attention to before I came, and obviously something that we look at very closely every day. There really is a loyalty, long holders, um, folks that truly have a respect for businesses like ours that focus on operational expertise, financial discipline, prudent growth, and uh, not just going for the, for the quick headline, although I know we're going to be talking about headlines in a little while. It, it does ring true through that social media, so I'm glad that, that, that experts like you pick up on that because I think it's so important that those investors are, are an extended part of the brand family, you know, um, espousing what's great about it. So what's different? It really, at, at the end of the day, it's it's not the sexiest headlines, but it it is true. A company that is 100% focused on shareholder value through operational expertise, great products, financial discipline that translates to financial results that, that, that allows ultimately the value of the business to go in. What's interesting, and, and I won't go take us down the rabbit hole because by no stretch am I an investor relations guy, but um, we're a really undervalued stock. 
compared to other MSOs, when you take all those things into consideration. So Kellen, I want you to kind of dive in there. Operational excellence, we've talked about it from the podcast, how important it is to understand some of these nuances. Can you kind of expand on that? I mean, I think that there's kind of two different uh, strategies being employed right now in like the MSO world. You can either be like a, a cure leaf or kind of a true leaf that's just doing a giant land grab, right? It's, it's a land race. How many states can they get in? How big can they grow their operation? And I think sometimes the, the quality kind of gets put in like a, a second priority, if you will, where I think the, the headlines in terms of entering new states potentially has the capacity to increase investor interest, right? And kind of growing their investor base and increasing the stock price and those things, I think, are one type of game that's being played by MSOs. And then you look at companies like MerryMed that are hyper-focused on kind of quality and organic growth. And so my question, Howard, is when you're looking at these two, like the MSOs in terms of tier one, tier two, tier three, and you kind of stumble across MerryMed, um, was the size one of the most attractive aspects of kind of jumping into uh, a leadership role within MerryMed, knowing that because it wasn't this massive organization, you would have the ability to influence change and kind of drive the shift based on your experience to success? Is that something that was a motivating factor for you, Howard? That is such a great question. Thanks. So you hit the nail on the head in in a lot of ways. You know, when I was thinking about what's the right next chapter, you have to, and then this is really for anybody looking at any potential career shift, right? Whether they're staying in their industry or, or, or not, yet you have to look to a true assessment of what's made you really happy professionally and where you've succeeded. And boy, if you can have a cross-section of that, then, you, you know, it's not going to be called work. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just, it's fun to come to the job every day. So what did MerryMed afford me? Yeah, this is a growing company. So first and foremost, the team that I mentioned earlier, not only have they been in, in this a long time and doing a long time, genuinely smart, nice people that you know you're going to go to war with every day. You want to you wanna truly have respect and friendly vibe with. And, and we have that here. The culture is second to none in, in my experience. Um, but then, yes, in terms of opportunity as a communicator, when I looked at everything that Merriman was about, it just looked like the massive hole was communication. They admittedly, and they'll admit if they were on the podcast, the folks that were here before me um, and and current management, they did not truly understand how to um, create a a narrative that was easy to digest and communicate and no strategies on how to communicate it. Well, that's what I do. So, you know, opportunity. And then, yeah, to to be offered as as a communications professional, understanding what I brought to the table in terms of management and leadership in my background and knowing that that was something that could supplement the existing skill set of the management team and, and provide me a seat at the table. Whereas so many, so often marketing and comms people hear from the C-suite, come out and say, hey, here's what we're doing. Go, go tell the story. To be part of the, the think tank of what the story should be is really appealing to me too. So you add all of that together um, and then look at the fundamentals of the business and the growth potential and what that could mean too. 
and and it, it honestly was a no brainer. Um, and I was I had opportunity for you know some of the other major players, but uh, ticking every single box, Merriman was the, was an easy choice. So I want to move on to one of those marketing efforts, and one I'm really excited to kind of dive into. By now, I would say most have seen the brownie, the infamous brownie that was posted across all major publications. So Howard, an origin about that, that that type of marketing effort, was the goal originally to try and catch fire and expand about Bubby's Baked? Can you kind of take us through, you know, the backstory of the the goal of the marketing effort and then, you know, how it came to fruition? Sure. So the idea was how do we launch this new brand? Right? How do we launch Bobby's Baked, which is a soft, chewy line of baked goods that, that we, uh, we debuted late in the year, December? How do we launch it? And from a, uh, in an industry where you, know, you can't do traditional marketing like traditional CPG would, you don't have mass advertising channels or budgets. So that, again, boy, you know, you love that as a communications guy. How do we use earned media, social media to get your message out? But at the core, it was the objective was how do we launch this brand? And oh, by the way, is there an opportunity to do that by putting some shine and buzz behind the Merrimed brand at the same time? So that, that was the communications challenge. Um, I have an, a fantastic agency partner, um, Trailblaze. Um, who's works with some other other uh, cannabis um, cannabis companies, and we put our heads together and thought about that challenge in a big way, um, and used some basic filters on what. And I'm I'm a big believer in in understanding the business goal you're trying to achieve, and then holding firm to a series of filters that if you can't check the box next to every one of those it's probably not worth going forward with. So for us, it was things like, is the idea authentic to the positioning of the brand? We had to have confidence. You know, it's very hard to secure earned media coverage of products in cannabis. Um, it just is, certainly in regional newspapers and, and publications. Yeah, if you've got something, you might hit the cannabis books, but, but boy, thinking about outside of the cannabis outlets, really difficult. Well, I challenged us to think about an idea that would do that. How do we, and, and, it, and we, had a, we had to have real confidence that we were landing on something that would hit, hit cannabis books, but also general lifestyle and business media. Um, had to be cost efficient. Remember, we're the company to go to my company for the first time and say, I really want to invest in a PR idea, PR stunt, you know, I had to be respectful of the dollars to be spent. And then I didn't want it to be too much of a strain on internal resources. It was late in the year. Folks are taxed. You're trying to crank it out. Um, and I didn't want to put too much of a drain on, on the system. Um, and then finally, when ultimately reporters would ask the question of why now, it had to be timely. You had to have some. It couldn't be an evergreen. So you could apply those 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 same filters to anything, but the brownie idea ended up ticking every box. We happened to get really fortunate that we came up with the idea right around the time that something called National Brownie Day was going on too. So we knew going for a record, people love records, people love big, people are nostalgic for brownies. It's National Brownie Day. It was sort of like, duh, this is, we got a winner. Perfect storm. 
you have to, you have to craft it right that and even i think howard i think you're a little like modest with that too because like even if you put all the pieces of the puzzle together there's still a good chance it doesn't kind of pick up and build on the momentum that your team was able to capture so before we kind of you know go forward in that process i want to stay back in the origin you know what was the first part of the puzzle you put together was it the brownie and then was it you know what we need to make this brownie just over the top big or was it a different vehicle that you said, you know, maybe a cookie and then you kind of switch to Brandy? Can you kind of take us through, you know, that thought process? Uh, that's a good one. So what was it? Well, no, I mean, it was about the brownie. We, we thought about other aspects of, of the line, but the brownie is just is, you know, it's just it's just symbolic. When you think about what that brand is about, um, it's, it's supposed to harken back to that first experience that so many of us had as an introduction to this space, right? The, the, the brownie edible, um, for better or worse, in terms of most people's experiences. <laughs> but everybody has a brownie story, right? So, And that's part of the heritage of what the brand is about. So we knew we wanted to be brownie. And then, you know, big, uh, you know, really what, what the folks at Trailblaze and I were really, were really scratching our heads about is what, what do we know media like to cover and what do we know pop culture is a size big giant you know like that's that it just it really wasn't any different than that and all it took was a few google searches to see what is out there are there actually records do people pay attention to this kind of stuff um if they do where does it get covered you know when we really scrutinize that we we looked at other world's largest foods and saw where the coverage was. And at the end of the day, we we just, our gut told us we have something here. And it really didn't have to be much more than a killer photo. We, we tried to make it as humanistic as possible. That's even a word by using our kitchen staff that actually baked it to be in the picture. It wasn't just the brownie. We wanted to show the, the human side of this thing in our kitchen where it was actually baked. And, uh, and at the end of the day, you know, I'm the guy that, that that's accountable to success or failure. And I had a look at my fellow management team members and say, look, you just, you got to trust me. I've done this a couple of times. I've made my career on these kind of moments. When I tell you, I feel it in my gut, you know, just, this is what you brought me on board to do. And we went with it. Yeah, the, the 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 picture is so perfect too. You see the staff standing around, and for me, like the brownie, the relatability, spot on with all those aspects. And you know, I, I touched on that pretty aggressively in our monthly playbook. But then when you see the photo and the sheer size of it in comparison to the staff, you just your mind is blown. And the first thing that everyone wants to do when they see a photo like this is send it to someone else. And that, to me, I think is like the real key is because to get something to go viral, especially in cannabis, you don't have all your other tools. You need to have like the social momentum, which is Get something that's so obscene and so ridiculous that you want to be the first one to send it to your whole family, which is exactly what I was when I saw it. And Kellen, I want to know your thoughts. Obviously, from a marketing sense, I'm geeking out over here. But what's your feeling when you see a photo like this? Does it have that same sort of touch point? Does it have that same sort of relatability for you? I mean, completely. And the brownie is like, I mean, everyone has like a college weed brownie story. That story. I mean, where someone maybe ate too many and didn't get to hang out the rest of the day, <laughs> not calling out anyone in, in my life. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, it, it, it literally makes you want to want to share. So 
I have two questions. My first question is, how much did you guys beat the other record holder by? And the second question is, did anyone try the brownie? And how was it? <laughs> so um, both great questions, man. Kellen, you're coming up with good ones. So how? Um, what did we beat it by? Well, what was shocking to us is, first off, so Guinness has a couple of, of cannabis weed-related oh, records. Wow. They haven't looked at it in, they haven't looked at the space in a long time. They made it clear to us they had no interest in going back to the space, which is an expose in the making on its own right. Uh, you know, the respect that Guinness has for a space today isn't what it should be. But there were very, very few records in Guinness and none, none touch brownie. So then it was, okay, does anybody claim to have the unofficial record? And nobody seemed to. So we looked at tr just general brownie records. And we couldn't see anything that was more than like 250 pounds. So we blew away by like threefold, even, even just the general brownie records. But, you know, that was, that just was, was just sort of the, you know, just icing on the cake or icing on the brownie as it were. Um, did anybody taste it? Well, you know, the, the brownie that we created, remember, it had to be authentic to the brand, had to be a brown. It's not the exact shape of our Bobby's brownie, but it is very, very similar to the actual recipe of it. So, you know, you have to do certain things. In you had to manipulate it, not manipulate the photo or manipulate the product, but, you know, you have to touch and chew to, to make sure the, the photo is right. And, and Brian, you're 100% right, right? You, the idea of the angles, et cetera, and thank goodness for our photographer, John Simon, who we used on this, you know, really has an eye for these kinds of things and what sells from PR perspective to understand the type of angles to make it that much bigger and pop. And I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that, that, it, that it worked as you look at the photo. So long story short, we intended to um, to ultimately sell the brownie as an individual item to a Massachusetts medical patient. Um, the regs suggested that we would be able to do it, but in the end, it, it became, as we ended up dealing with the state, it became more of a challenge than, than was worth it. So, um, you know, nobody ended up taking it home. <laughs> nobody ended up taking it home. Um, but I, man, I saw some very funny memes about, Hey, I'll just take a quarter of, you know, corner. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a beast. It was an absolute beast. So let, I, I want to continue on the, on this passage. So you, you take the photo, you send yeah. it to trailblazers, they disperse it to the media. At what point do you catch wind that this isn't just one of those efforts where like you're getting some good buzz, like things are really starting to pick up. Like what, what goes mm -hmm. off internally to recognize that like, hey, this is really happening? Yeah, uh, another great question. So strategically, we pushed out the, a news release about it and the photo, I believe it was December 7th with Brownie Day on December 8th, thinking editors will sit for it, do their own homework, run with something on, on Thursday morning. We started getting trickling of inbound you know, questions and all on that on December 7th. But we were we we woke up on the eighth to to Justin. In it was very clear, very quickly, we were onto something really really big, um, very quickly. And I think it was TMZ ran something in the middle of the day 
Um, we got word Jimmy Kimmel was going to be doing something. And I think those kind of mass hits, USA Today put it on it on the cover of its of its health section of all things. Um, it was pretty quick that we realized we are we're onto something even bigger than we when we than we thought we would. And I told Trailblaze, like my North Star for this type of effort is a late night show. Get me a late night show, and you know you fit the zeitgeist. We hit three plus Saturday Night Live. Um, the, and the results were the results were just beyond what any of us could imagine. Yeah, I, I couldn't even. I mean, I'm sure, like when you go in, especially with someone your background, you feel pretty good, and like you were saying, your gut kind of tells you you're onto something. And even when you send that off, you're kind of thinking to yourself, you know, I hope you know everything checks the box. I hope it kind of picks up. I hope the timing is right. And then when you start to see the type of response, you're like, oh my god, this isn't just like this isn't just picking up steam. This is going absolutely crazy. And from our side, we saw it everywhere. And to to kind of understand from a conceptual standpoint, right now to evaluate the performance, right? For from my standpoint, I always look at marketing effort and say like, what's the goal? And then what's it going to cost us to to kind of achieve that goal? And then kind of calculate a metric then to determine success. So from a success standpoint, obviously you can't put a number on it, but how does Mary Med and you specifically, Howard, how do you quantify success in this effort to say, you know, like, this is what we achieved successfully. These are the numbers we use to determine that. Was it impressions? Was it overall awareness? What was the end, you know, North Star metric for you? Right. So look, the, the holy grail of communications and it's anyone in PR and earned media and even social media to an extent um, have grappled with forever is, how do, you, how do you draw true ROI? You'd love to draw a straight line between effort and sales at the end of the day, right? Isn't that why you're doing anything from a consumer marketing perspective? But unless you're doing zero marketing outside of that one effort, you can't draw that line. So you just, you have to look at the tried and true benchmarks that are uh, communications benchmarks, and you hit on a few of them. It's consumer impressions, and and I could walk you through the algorithms and you know the sort of the the SOPs as it relates to how to determine impressions. But we had several billion, um, which is just no big deal. astounding, <laughs> astounding for for a, an effort like that. Um, you know, some of those other fun stats. We I think we had something like fourteen hundred stories um, at last count. And, you know, every day something trickles in. Um, uh, 1,400 stories in 43 countries. Really, though, important, ultimately, and, and, and candidly, we weren't thinking about this as a metric going in, but my, my mentor was Al Golan. I mentioned I started my career at, at Golan, and he always said, you know, awards meant nothing until we started winning them. And so I sort of look at metrics the same way. This is a metric, social media metrics that I hadn't really been thinking about until the numbers hit me in the face. We grew, we grew our community across our corporate channels, not like the Bubby's Bake channel that started from zero and went sky. I'm talking about Mary Med's corporate channels grew by about 300%, which meant that, you know, folks, looked at who is this company behind this, right? And when you're talking about a space that's so retail investor heavy and for better or worse today, driven by headline and buzz, um, to get that kind of growth and, and seeing that, by the way, stay, that stickiness, um, that was, you know, that that really blew me away um, in terms of, uh, 
in terms of results. And then look, you you mentioned earlier, you know, that the so the 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 cost against those types of results. This was a couple of thousand dollars, uh, you know, when you think about literally think about labor and and food cost and a photographer. And now you're talking about digital communication to get the word out. So it, it truly was peanuts against that type of um, that type of effectiveness. I tried to calculate what you would have to pay in order to calculate for the cost per impressions. And the number was so astronomical based on the, the amount of views you got that it, it almost wouldn't make sense to, in order to do that. You'd have to be like a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi or a Super Bowl ad in order to get that type of impressions. And those results, I think, were so astounding for me to see that you got, your team had spent you know a few thousand dollars to create this and in turn had captured just an enormous amount of impressions. True, true. And, you know, look, while we're on the topic, I'll put my my professor hat on of, of PR. And I would I would caution anyone out there that's either in PR or responsible for the budgets of them or client. Don't use advertising equivalency as a metric. Um, and I'm glad you didn't ask me about it. Advertising equivalency is a really scary thing. Right. So um, I don't put a monetary value on the PR. Um, and, and without getting too wonky, the reason for that is, you know, a story on, on, uh, in the New York times, a quarter page advertising equivalency would say, well, what is a quarter page ad costs in the New York times? There's your advertising equivalency of that hit. Well, no, it doesn't take into account. Was it a picture versus words? Was it one mention of your brand versus a full profile? Was it a negative story versus a neutral or positive one? So I've always discounted that number, but eyeballs are eyeballs. Impressions are impressions, engagement and stickiness to your story. You can't, you, know, you can't, you can't refute. Did you lean into any other previous, let's say, cannabis-based viral efforts when you were crafting this, or did you look into outside industry? Can I, one last question about that concept and then we'll kind of take a different direction. Yeah, well, I guess the, the answer to that is I, I didn't draw on anything in cannabis. Overall, I would say my communication strategies in cannabis are informed through auditing. I'm big on data and insights and always looking at what other, other companies and other individuals are doing to drive their brand and what can we learn from them, good and bad. Um, so to some extent, I would say that played. like, And maybe that was the sector of cannabis magazines uh, and, and outlets. Where does the story belong and with who? Um, but really what I what I drew upon more than anything was past pre-cannabis experience. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to be in a position to do these kind of, have these kind of moments a couple of times in my career. And the playbook is, the industries are different, but the playbook is the same in terms of filters and some of the things that at the end of the day say, why would fill in the blank a, a late night monologue want this for a morning show or a USA Today or the Wall Street Journal? Why would they cover this? And there are some elements that hold true, no matter what you're promoting, that would say they will cover this. And timeliness is one celebrity, something that pulls at at the hearts, emotional heartstrings of people, right? All these things play in, in together. So I thought hard about where I've had successes before. Um, and, and that's what we applied here. What is one challenge you have found marketing cannabis that has surprised or shocked you that the everyday person in outside industry wouldn't know? <laughs> Great question. 
Well, in the world of marketing, I'd say that, uh, you know, I, I'd like to say that that marketing in cannabis is like the United States of Europe, as opposed to the United States, that every market is so different. Your press releases need to look different sometimes in different, in different markets, right? How you describe the product, obviously the area of, of whether you can claim benefit or not. So I think it's, it's the challenge and it can be a real headache to think about how do you make noise for something in all these different markets where the regs are so different, marketing regs are so different, and you can't use traditional advertising. And in some cases, even social channels have become so tough to do anything with. So, so getting through that slog is what I think most, most people that haven't been in, in cannabis, but their eyes are wide open at the opportunity. I can't wait. You know, I can't tell you how many people call me all the time. How do I get in? It's time. You know, I want to make that leap. I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's fun. It's great. We're in the early innings, but expect expect challenges that you haven't faced with your, uh, with your Clorox bleach or your, you know, Diageo liquor, what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Perfectly said between market to market and recognizing that some of the tools you've leaned on your entire career. And it's like, yeah, you can't use those. Good luck now. Good luck. Exactly. Exactly. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? Biggest misconception of the industry that uh, I suppose that, that that anybody working within it are are taking puffs on a blunt while they're while they're working away. Um, much more serious, you know. Much well, not serious is 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 maybe too too hard headed, hard handed a, a term. But you know, this is an industry that is taking itself really seriously more and more every day, and uh, and I, I think that's gratifying. At the same time, because we're such a left leaning liberal oriented industry. I find the population, the community of this industry so terrific to work with. I talked about what it means to me to work with a management team that I really just adore. But the same holds true for the for the media that cover it, the salespeople at media platforms trying to sell their wares, investors and pundits of. It's just a really terrific industry to work in every day. I, I, I'm curious if you find the same thing. It just makes it so much more enjoyable, I find. I agree. Yeah. I think uh, I think it's a unique industry because not only is everyone competing against each other for market share and those kind of things, but the, there's a camaraderie amongst the whole industry because we're all fighting federal legalization as well. No doubt, no doubt. Um, and look, there's it's a big pie, you know, for for us all to share in. So um, the rising tide, you know, you're not looking to step on the head of of the competitor next door. You want to do better than them, but there's room for all of us to grow. Absolutely. So before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? Well, are we talking cannabis? It could be life. Wow. Uh, well, so I, I like to use a line from, from Larry King. I, I never learned anything while I was talking. So it's, you know, I like to be the guy behind the camera. I don't do a lot of these kind of interviews because I like to listen. I like to read. And that's what I pass on every day to, to, to younger executives who are coming up and certainly in communications and marketing. You're really good in this space if you're the kind of person who go to a cocktail party and not. If I were to ask you, Brian, 
you know, I'm a friend of yours. I'm going to take you to a cocktail party. You're not going to know it, know a soul there. Do you get nervous about that? Or are you excited about that opportunity? Both. I think a little bit of nervous is good, healthy energy. And uh, Kellen and I have done our fair share of uncomfortable networking in large <laughs> groups. Um, and it, it's it's about the experience and learning from others, right? Asking questions and figuring out, you know, what you can learn from others. Very, very well said. So I I, I, I pose that question to, to younger interview candidates or at least try to assess it. I think those that are successful in marketing um, in any field, enjoy that. Enjoy that experience, that little bit of discomfort, but also the, the, the feeling that going in, you're going to learn a little bit about a lot of different things. Well, learning that, that an inquisitive marketer, you know, that's what an inquisitive marketer is all about. Drawing and then drawing up all those things, know how to, how to have that informed decisions and strategies you know, that's, so that's what I tell folks. The next time you're invited to a cocktail party by your friend, you don't say you're not, you don't want to go. Jump in, go and, uh, and enjoy. And then tomorrow, learn how to, how to apply some of what you learned from some of the people you met the night before. It's perfectly said. All right, prediction time. Howard, is there a formula that can be utilized to create viral marketing efforts? If so, what is the most important factor to consider? And if not, why not? So the, the answer is a, a hesitant yes, because there is a reason it's called earned media and not paid media. So there is never a guarantee. But if you're able to check the box on the things that I mentioned much earlier in this interview, is be able to answer why now from, from the press make it authentic to the brand, um, uh, make sure it follows some of the tenets of other things that, that land in the media that, that you know the masses want to pay attention to. If you can answer all that, that basically is your formula um, for success. So, and then, and then go with it. Just go with it. Um, don't overspend, but, but go with the idea. Kellen. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. Um, I mean, my perception on it is that if you work at anything, you'll see progress. So I think that putting effort in and working at these kind of things, um, there should be a right way to do it. And clearly there is. And so um, I, I think that, yeah, it's cut and dry. If you put the effort in and you're able to kind of learn from your mistakes and see what other people are doing and see what works for them and what doesn't and what works in other industries and kind of like just put all those together in a pot and stir it up. You're going to come up with something successful. If you just stand there and throw money at it, I don't think that that's how you get anything done in this world. 100% true. And by the way, I would also add, make sure you've got great partners. And, and if I haven't said it enough, um, the team at Trailblaze has just been, has, they've been really great partners. That agency client relationship is just, is, is so important in making a marketing initiative hum. So I'm going to take the other side, unfortunately, um, because <laughs> I think the one challenge that people will face after listening to this is they will try and follow the exact same playbook that Howard put together and find out that it is not as simple and straightforward. Conceptually, yes, right? The You check the box and all those things. But there's so many tiny details that your team got right that were enabled it to kind of hit its reach 
that I think it's it's almost impossible to say this is going to be viral. I think you can feel good about it and you can feel confident going in. And I think you can derive really strong success from some marketing efforts. But in order to go the type of viral viral that we're referring to here, I think it, it, there's some there's some serious luck to it because the angle of the photo, if it's slightly off, doesn't hit. If there's a perception that the individuals there are not, you know, there's a different feeling amongst their, their body language, it might not hit. If the timing is slightly off, it might not hit. There's so many factors in play here that it's it's so it's so challenging to do that. And so many times, at least in my experience, people have come, hey, I've got this next concept that's going to go viral. But really, what is viral? To me, there's like this, there's extra range. There's like success, there's above average success, there's incredible success. And then there's actually viral, which is just absolutely exploding impressions where you it's almost unstoppable fire. And I think what your team was able to accomplish, I think is is commendable. And I wonder, I think there'll be a ton of challengers in the future, but I wonder if anyone will be able to replicate it and, and exceed an impression level, what your team was able to accomplish. Well, thank you. Um, I hope we do. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, the hell of a bar to set. <laughs> I, I hope we do. Well, look, a couple of years ago, I mentioned I worked at Acreage and, and we, uh, we, we created an ad for the Super Bowl. It's perfect timing. It was right around now. We did it. We did a PSA um, called the time is now as, as you know, the time is now for legalization. Time is now for people to pay attention to this plant. Um, and we tried to pay a couple million dollars to get it on air during the Super Bowl. CBS, they turned down flat. Um, and we seized that opportunity um, to tell a story, you know, Hey, if a CBS is going to put, a beer brand on, a pharmaceutical brand on, why not this? And we enjoyed similar sort of zeitgeist, zeitgeist su- su- success when your your gut tells you you're onto something. I think Kellen said it, right? You know, you got it, you got to go for it and apply it. But there are the other myriad, you never know that there could be another news story that hits that day that trumps all. So there's absolutely luck. But again, that's why it's called earned media and not paid media. You are leaving a lot of those factors up to chance that you just can't control everything. Well, we'll be watching closely to see another one of those efforts kind of go viral. So for Howard, our listeners who want to learn more, they want to get in touch and they want to follow more viral marketing efforts, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter, a very, very uh, unsexy handle of H. Schachter. Um, And they can certainly, you know, reach out anytime over LinkedIn, email, always happy to talk about the industry, marketing, PR, and and like we said, you know, the the, the raising, rising tide lifts all boats. So if there's anybody else out there facing a challenge, but maybe haven't done anything like this, I will be very happy to expand on anything we talked about today if it's of help to any brand out there. Oh, that's awesome, man. I appreciate you sharing that. So we'll link those up in the show notes. Thanks so much for your time, Howard. Oh, thank you for having me, guys. Have a great week. And, well. uh, enjoy the skiing, Kel. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. 
I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.